0: This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a
1: sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. This is a crowd podcast. We
2: didn't start the fire. The only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. <laughs>
1: Hemingway, man, Stranger in a Strange Land, Dylan, Berlin, Bay of Pigs invasion, Lawrence of Arabia, British Beatlemania. Oh, ah, yeah yeah, 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 yeah,
0: yeah. Hello and welcome to episode eighty-nine of We Didn't Start the Fire, the podcast that explores post-war history and the reasons why the world is like it is today, all done through the lyrics of a number one smash hit from the legend that is Billy Joel. I'm Tom Fordyce. I'm
1: Katie Puckrick.
0: Katie, are we ready for the next part of our beautiful adventure?
1: Oh, my ham hocks are a quiver all about this. We're going to be discussing the Beatles today.
0: Waited so long for this episode.
1: Waited so long. We have talked about it. We've dreamed about it. We've uh, cogitated, we've masticated, all of those things. Your impressions of the Beatles as a young man, Tom Fordyce.
0: So my mum and dad had a copy of With the Beatles. And they also weirdly had a copy of that rock and roll album, which um, was a big gatefold sleeve and in no way gave you a real taste of what the Beatles were. If you'd looked at the album, you would have thought the Beatles were some sort of late 50s rock and roll band. Mm. But it really began for me with a music teacher at secondary school called Mr. Frey. I think his first name was Stephen, but he will forever be Mr. Frey for us. He was the best possible class teacher to get for a couple of reasons. Number one, when it rained, he'd let you go into the classroom. He had a stand-up piano, and he would give out music books with hits of the 60s, play his piano, and we'd all sing along. And number two, he had a fantastic, bear in mind this is 1984, and he's got a big mullet, a big (laughs) silver separate stereo. And he had the red album and the blue album, and he'd let you put them on and listen to it.
1: So those are all the the two compilations. Yeah, the two. Two
0: early compilations, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. so that's where it all began. How about for you, Katie?
1: Well, uh, I grew up with the Beatles because I'm about 10 years younger, older, sorry. (laughs) Look at the Freudian slip going on. (laughs) When I was a small child living in Berlin in the height of the Cold War, as I always like to remind listeners... I used to listen to my sister's Help album, but the thing was, my sister didn't really take kindly to me. She didn't really warm up to me until, I don't know, we were both adults. I'd throw myself on the floor, outside her locked bedroom (laughs) door and there'd be a slit of light coming through the crack and the music would be coming through the crack. And so I would listen and pretend that my sister and I were listening together. (laughs) So that was my first introduction. And then I really got into the Beatles a little bit later, 1970, 71, after they'd already busted up. And this was because a friend of my sister's had bequeathed to her a Beatlemania scrap book. Big, fat tome. I used to pour over it like it was the Dead Sea Scrolls. And it had all of these clippings from 16 magazine and newspapers. And it was all from the height of Beatlemania madness. And I couldn't make any sense out of it whatsoever. I was probably about eight eight years old and it was all stuff about fab this and gear that (laughs) lots of exclamation points uh, ads for mop top wigs and I didn't understand the obsession with the hair because by the time I was hip to the Beatles everybody had long hair so I didn't know what the big whoop was but I'll tell you what captured my imagination entirely was this very sinister, villainous figure who went by the name of Jane Asher. Jane Asher was the biggest figure (laughs) in all of the the scrapbook clippings. And she was a, a figure of hate and loathing and revulsion. And it turned out she was just a British actress who was Paul McCartney's girlfriend at the time. And um, I was so captivated and intrigued and horrified by this specter that I came up (laughs) with a song and it went like this. Alarm, alarm, Jane Asher's on the loose. (laughs) Alarm, alarm, Jane Asher's on the loose. And I taught it to all my friends and then we would run screaming around my little playroom.
0: If only Jane Asher knew. You know, Jane Asher had a sort of secondary career as a cake maker.
1: Yes. Well, you had to do something to try and rehabilitate <laughs> your your image with those angry little girls. We can talk this blarney all day long and probably will continue to do we so after our esteemed guest leaves. However, let us bring in the expert. He is a historian and biographer of the Beatles. He's often referred to as the world's leading authority on this band. He is Mark Lewis. And welcome, Mark.
2: Thank you very much. Hello.
1: Hello. So, Mark, everybody alive now has an innate understanding of what a rock band is, what it entails, how to do it, that it can be hugely lucrative. But Help us understand what being in a band meant for the early Beatles, because they didn't have this whole career path mapped out for them. Was it considered a pastime for 'er ne'er-do-wells? Was it considered borderline thuggery? Mm. Or were they just, uh, you know, having fun before they had to indulge in real-life occupations?
2: I think from their own point of view, they were just going to ride it as, as, as far as it would take them. Um, but they had no knowledge of where that could be, uh, because there was no template. So, uh, but in the, in the eyes of their, of their parents, guardians, you know, that, that parental generation, uncles, aunts, and so on, then it was a waste of time and it wasn't going to lead anywhere and maybe something it would be, they would have to get out of their system. But you know, just let them do it, and you know, eventually they will have to get, as you said, a proper job.
1: And who are the role models for the the Fab Four or the Fab Five? I'm not really sure how many people hmm. were involved at this scenario, but coming together as a group, did they think, oh, we could be like Buddy Holly and the Crickets, or you know, who were they looking towards?
2: The Crickets are really the only role models because otherwise their heroes are solo artists, the likes of Elvis particularly and Jerry Lee Lewis and Little Richard and so on. But Buddy Holly had his group, the Crickets, and all. he did record without them or sometimes with them but only had his name on it the crickets was a kind of a template for them and it certainly helped to give them the name beetles comes out of crickets so in liverpool they liked john and paul i remember i remember i wasn't there john and paul i remember them saying like the idea that crickets had a, a punning name because it was both the insect and the sport And of course, to an American, it it wasn't the sport at all. It was only the insect. But they had the idea of a punning name as well, which was beetle and insect, but also beat music, beat poetry, beat movement, and so on. So um, that was why they went for that name. But otherwise, very, very few role models. And and no, I mean, as you said in, in your piece just now, everybody now looks at, 60 years of bands. You can say we're like the Kinks or we're like the Yardbirds or we're like the Pistols or we're like the Jam or we're like the Verve or whoever. But in those days, there was nobody like that. Cricket's just about, but not really. So they were just doing something that they were going to get away with for as long as they could get away with it. There's
0: so many remarkable aspects of Beatlemania, aren't there, Mark? But one of the most striking for me is how staid the British pop scene appears to be before Beatlemania. Yeah. It seems like you've got a mixture of faux American stars. So you've got people like Marty Wilde, or you've got teenagers plucked by Svengali's from nowhere and given ludicrous names. Like Marty Wilde. Like Marty Wilde. (laughs) Billy
1: Fury. Billy Fury, yeah. Yeah.
0: Rory Storm. And, (laughs) And then you've got people like Helen Shapiro, who is with the Beatles on one of their first nationwide tours, who...
2: Did she have a beehive? She had a uh, remarkable hair, didn't she? Yes, she but did. She it was all, only It was all backcombed, I think. Well, initially she was 14 when she had her first number one. Yeah. Um, and a great vocal talent. Got quite a deep voice. Yeah, very deep voice, and, but a very together young woman. Um, still a child, really. Please don't treat me like a child was one of her early hits. The thing is, you see, before the Beatles, and even it took them a while to, to change this mindset, it was reckoned to be the, the kind of the... Um, the leprous arm of show business <laughs> it, or leg leprous leg of show business pop music rock music whatever you want to call it because it it was four juveniles uh, of fairly low iq that was the perception it had no artistic merit of any kind and as soon as you would become a success in pop music your ambition you had to say this was i want to be an all-round entertainer as if what you were doing wasn't enough And clearly, in the eyes of the business, it wasn't enough. So as soon as you, if you had any kind of film appeal, you would go and make a film. And if you had any kind of dancing appeal, you would start dancing. You would hopefully get a Palladium show. And you would be into show business kind of through the back door. And you would be liked by the mums and dads as well as the teenagers. And that's exactly how it was. And there's no hint of rebellion in any of that and if you look at pop music in britain particularly pre-beatles it's incredibly safe but it wasn't recognized that there was a gap it wasn't like if only some four young guys would come along and show us a new way of doing it which is why when they did come along and show everyone a new way of doing it it was suddenly like oh my god there's another way of doing it and it sounds so obvious now because we've had 60 years of it but at that time there was no a perceived gap And they came along and they were completely different to everything else. They were not like Billy Fury. They were not Marty Wilde. All those guys were kind of Elvis impersonators. Subtract Elvis, Elvis's existence, and all those guys disappear. And Cliff as well, because Cliff was modeled on Elvis to begin with. Now, the Beatles were hugely influenced by Elvis and he was their idol, no question about it. But then they added so much more to their palette. And these other guys, Marty and Billy. And I liked those guys. I mean, they did some good work. And it wasn't their fault that they had to fit into the system as it was. But the Beatles came and changed the system. And immediately, that whole generation, that first generation of British rockers, they looked old hat. They hadn't looked it before the Beatles. And suddenly now, they're old hat. And that includes the Shadows, who've got their tuxedos on and doing their fancy steps steps, and all that. Yeah, It was all fine until someone came along and said, it can be like this, you know. And then it changed everything.
0: Katie, if I, you know you sometimes get asked this question uh, by friends. If you could go back to any period in history, <laughs> and you're meant to say the court of Henry VIII and stuff like that, right. I would go back to that point. I yeah. would go back to the point where music and culture changes forever in the space of a couple of months.
1: Would you be down in the sweaty cavern club?
0: I'd have gone, gone to Hamburg before then, I think, or around that time. I would. I want to be there every step of the way because I can't imagine, Mark, that sense of excitement when, as you say, the old-stayed world, which has been there for, for decades, yeah. is blown away by this, this new storm.
2: Yes. They come in, and initially they have to fit the existing templates of the way you do shows, for example. So the rock tour, as it would become, which the Beatles helped to usher in, they never really were quite part of that. Their tours, particularly in Britain and in America, in fact, were multi-act bills so you've got five six acts on a bill and the audience has come to see the star but they have to wait two hours before they come on because it's all these other acts first Uh, and the the bill topping act the beatles come on and do 25 minutes at the end and there's no two hour shows for the beatles i mean they did them before they were famous but once they were famous no because the business was wasn't set up that way but they helped to make that change and then they're not quite part of it
1: I'm interested that the Beatles got themselves out of Liverpool over to Hamburg. Was this scene as hugely adventurous in those days, kind of the equivalent of going to the moon?
2: Hamburg is just—it's—it's it's almost an anomaly in, in that it, the number of coincidences that actually stacked up in order for it to happen uh, are ridiculous. But really, what it was was some grotty bars or grotty clubs on the Großer Freiheit, aligned a to the red light district in Hamburg, where the sailors docked and needed entertainment for the evening, needed live music. And it was as simple as that. And this was very unglamorous. And the living quarters or accommodation was atrocious. And they just went over there. But that's where they learned their craft.
1: And what was the big idea behind relocating to Germany? Did they have some sort of master plan? Or was it like, oh, we can just scrap together some money doing this thing
2: yeah there's no there was no master plan they never actually had a plan ever the Beatles and they (laughs) never did they never did any kind of forward thinking of projecting what we're going to be doing in a few months time they always just took it as it came yeah Uh, and Hamburg just turned up because the guy who was kind of managing them in Liverpool kind of had a deal with a a club owner or a bar owner in Hamburg who needed an act and and Alan Williams this guy in Liverpool said well I'll, I'll provide you with a group and um, it wasn't going to be the Beatles, but the others who who he had in mind couldn't do it. And the Beatles ended up going over there and it opened up that whole scene. They weren't the first, but the, the progress that they made over there was so dramatic that it opened up a and it's a... a, a an exchange scheme almost between Liverpool and Hamburg. But no other group who went from Liverpool to Hamburg made anything like the progressive leap that the Beatles made when they were there.
1: So it was kind of a apprenticeship program to be rock stars. I mean, it was an arduous schedule, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, they would play up to seven hours a night, uh, seven nights a week, but it gave them phenomenal stage experience in a very short space of time. And when they came back to Liverpool after the first visit, no one in Liverpool really knew who they were, because before they went to Hamburg, they, they were barely any anything on the local scene and they were billed as the Beatles from hamburg so naturally the dancers and we've got to remember these were dances that they were playing not rock shows so they weren't seated audiences it's a ballroom mm. and people are meant to be dancing and the Beatles come on and everyone just rushes to the stage because they're so magnetic and then speaks to them afterwards and find out that you speak very good English from Germany and say, actually, we only come from down the road. (laughs) So it ended up like an apprenticeship scheme, exactly as you put it, except that it wasn't planned. It just happened to fall into place that way. You can
0: hear that influence of the, the Hamburg years throughout their career, can't you? But certainly as Beatlemania begins and they're doing those live shows, but also on those early albums with all the rock and roll covers That fill out those early albums that they used
2: to learn and play in Hamburg they had a phenomenal repertoire and um, one of the things that they did in the moment was decide that they weren't going to repeat themselves in any one evening in a bar in Hamburg in this ridiculous thought that if someone comes in the bar for a snaps at 8 o'clock in the evening and sees this band on stage that they're obviously completely ignoring uh, because they're in conversation with their friend and then they leave the bar and they go out for their night's entertainment and come back in the bar at 1 o'clock the Beatles didn't I think it was Paul's mentality in particular which was brilliant we don't want them to hear us playing the same song that they heard earlier so on that tenuous basis they decided they wouldn't repeat themselves so their repertoire just exploded they knew so many songs and they could play them they knew how to play them they knew what the chords were what the arrangement was often they would rearrange to suit their own instrumental lineup because very few of the songs they actually played had been recorded by a band like them it would often have sax or piano and they would have to arrange it for three guitars and drums so they were incredible it was their mentality from beginning to end that Mark them out as different to anybody else.
1: Let's talk about the personnel shuffle that mm. happens during this time mm. till we get to the the final lineup of the Beatles. What happens? Who goes in? Who goes out?
2: They start pretty much as a five piece. Well, in fact, they start as a four piece, which is John, Paul, George, and Stewart, with no drummer. Uh, and they have a succession of drummers. Paul is a drummer for a while, which he doesn't. He can do. He's a very good drummer, but he doesn't, didn't want to be on the drums. He wanted to be front line where he needed to be because he was singing so they get a drummer uh, so that's john paul george and stewart then they get a drummer called pete pete best and they go off to hamburg and they're a five piece and they return to liverpool they're still a five piece but stewart doesn't come back very quickly because he's fallen in love with a german girl astrid so then they're a four piece when they go back to hamburg the second time Stuart rejoins them in fact he's already back a little bit in liverpool so they are five-piece again but it's the second visit to hamburg where stewart rather decisively leaves and they shrink to a permanent four-piece and they stay that four-piece with pete for another year until they kick him out and bring ringo in
1: and Pete didn't have the right hair, I understand, or he hmm. didn't take the right drugs, or wear the right clothes, or what was the, what was the issue? Or he wasn't just he wasn't a good enough drummer.
2: He it was many reasons, but from their point of view, John Paul and George, the front line, he wasn't a good enough drummer, and that's good enough reason right there. There are further reasons as well. He just didn't fit in. Being a Beatle was a state of mind, as well as you're not just in a group called the Beatles. It's about an attitude, it's a thing. Mm. It's what bands would go on to have quite commonly, which is a, a, a collective view of things or a collective attitude. It's like
1: being in a gang. Yeah,
2: exactly that. And Pete was always a misfit in that setup. And um, he didn't make proper eye contact with them or anybody. So then they're, they're on stage and they turn around to look at the drummer to kind of give him the eye about a change or something. And he's not looking. And his drumming was limited. For from their perspective and personality didn't fit so he just he, he just had to go Ringo seems like he fits in
0: from the word go because he's fun he's super experienced because he's played in all these bands so his drumming is technically better but critically for the success of the Beatles he's different to the others as well because they're all different aren't they and that was one of the reasons that Beatlemania goes as crazy as it does because there's a Beatle for everyone
2: They brought in contrast. A Beatle for everyone is exactly what it is. One of the wonderful things about the Beatles from the start, before they were famous, but certainly all the way through, even to this day, is that you can love the Beatles as a group, but one of them just that bit more. But being a Paul fan doesn't mean you're anti-John, and being a John fan doesn't mean you're anti-George, and being a Ringo fan doesn't mean you're anti whoever i haven't said paul it doesn't matter you you love them all but one of them just that bit more and fans would divide themselves naturally and you you, the girls and boys would fall for their particular beetle for whatever reason was unique to them it might be the personality it might just be the looks whatever it was that was unplanned you can't plan anything like that if you do try and plan it it's going to be artificial and it will fall apart within a year or two which is why, I mean, the beauty thing about the Beatles is that they weren't designed by committee. And everything just happened organically in the best possible way, which is why it was able to endure, still endure 60 years on, because it was right.
0: This is an advertisement from Better Help Therapy Online. Hello, fire listeners. It's Tom here. I hope you're enjoying the series. I wanted to tell you about Better Help we all carry around different stresses in life, big and small. A lot of the people we talk about in this series definitely did. And as we know, if we keep those stresses bottled up, it can impact us negatively. That's where therapy can be great. Therapy isn't just for people who've experienced major trauma. It can help you understand the way that your brain works and why you feel a particular way. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's all online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. FIRE listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com WDSTF, as in, we didn't start the FIRE. So, that is BetterHelp.com WDSTF. Eat stress-free this spring with Factors delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Always fresh and never frozen, each meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to eat in just two minutes. I eat flexitarian, so with a weekly menu of 35 options, there's plenty for me to choose from. So, last night I had the Moroccan-style almond-crusted salmon, and it was absolutely delicious. These are no-fuss, no-mess meals. Factor eliminates the hassle of prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. Simply heat and savor the good stuff. With over 60 add-ons like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks and smoothies, there's plenty of options to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. Plus, you can customise your weekly meals and pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast premium meals without the need for cooking. What are you waiting for? head to factormealscom slash WDSTF50 and use the code WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code WDSTF50 at Factomeals.com slash WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active.
1: Mark, you mentioned boys and girls going to the shows. Who did go to Beatle shows at the beginning? Was the club scene in Britain and also Germany evenly split between boys and girls? And when did it start to shift towards girls only and the whole Beatlemania phenomenon? Yeah.
2: Well, I mean, I'll jump to the end there. Beatlemania wasn't girls only, but it was princi- oh, okay. principally girls. It was the girls who screamed. And because screaming was had never been done on that volume or, or sustained for so long.
1: Yay, girls!
2: <laughs> then it appeared to <laughs> be girls only. But if you look at pictures of Beatles audiences in 63, 4, 5, there are boys there. Mm. Because boys will be looking at the guitars uh, and, and enjoying the music. But obviously, they're not. Then it's not the sexual angle for the boys as it mm. is for the girls they played in places where boy meets girl i mean they were playing ballrooms and things so there would often be a almost 50 50 split of gender there because it would be your night out you'd go to the ballroom on a saturday night and whoever was on you wouldn't go to see the beatles as such but who's on this week oh it's the beatles this week or last week it was the searchers or next week it's rory storm whatever So you just go and dance and try and pick up a boy or pick up a girl or whatever it might be. And those early dances, it's got that classic thing where the girls would dance around their handbags and and the boys would be out the perimeter eyeing up the girl that they were hoping to chat up before the end of the night. And there'd be a fight often, especially in the Liverpool ballrooms with the teddy boy gangs all pitching in in the middle of the dance floor. I mean there was a lot of fighting in those days which is now forgotten in both Britain and in Hamburg typically a good a, a night out seeing the Beatles would involve a fight and they'd have to be playing on while this thing was taking place in front of them, quite violent. <laughs> and uh, but that's all gone now. But that was a big part of growing yes. up in this country. Sound,
1: soundtracking the riot. And mm. the Beatles themselves looked quite tough, didn't they? After their Hamburg uh, yeah. tours. Is that right?
2: They looked tough and they could take care of themselves, but they generally kept out of it as much as possible.
1: Because they were all in their leather jackets and their grease back hair. Yeah. Yeah.
2: They were dressed as troublemakers, and the place that they the most synonymous with the cavern had a no jeans policy because jeans were associated with delinquency. Uh, and 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 you're a delinquent. I'm looking, looking at yeah. you right now. <laughs> so you would try and keep them out. It was a it was a dress code, if you like. If you've got jeans on, you can't come in because you might cause trouble. And if you've got something smarter on, you might not want to cause trouble because it might damage your clothes or whatever. But the Beatles played on stage in jeans and that was a tough thing for the cavern ownership, the management to actually adapt to. It's like, well, we don't allow them in, but they're on stage in jeans. But they were so brilliant, so magnetic, and they were such a pull at the box office box office it was just you know you pay your money and you come in but for the Beatles nights there'd be queues down the street which you wouldn't get for anybody else because they were that brilliant
1: and give us a sense of what they were actually like on stage in these ballrooms or in these tiny sweaty clubs
2: yeah they would play well depending on what the engagement was up to two hours a night but it could be just be an hour Um, and it would be you know and the next number is going to be and you know but in that moment that that was cabaret because they were incredibly funny and and you couldn't take your eyes off them. And I've interviewed lots of the boys and girls who used to go down the cavern and they would just say, that uh, quite apart from the music that they would give you, which was blow your socks off, brilliant rock and roll or rhythm and blues, they would also be hysterically funny and John would be stomping around the stage or pulling faces or taking the piss out of Paul or Paul <laughs> would be taking the piss out of George or they'd all be taking the piss out of George in a loving way, right. in a way that the audience would enjoy but not take sides in. It would just be part of the bonhomie of a show. In fact, some of the best cavern moments for those who used to go there were when the fuses blew, which was quite often because of the condensation dripping down on the electrics. And then they would have to do something acoustic for 20 minutes, say, until the electrics got fixed. And and that was just the best bit because they didn't have unplugged instruments. They'd have to just, they'd sing a cappella or Paul would get on the piano or they'd just do comedy. Wow. unscripted comedy. They were just naturally funny guys. And why is it that the Beatles, out
0: of all the bands in this quite febrile scene, why is it that the Beatles jump out of it to the extent they do? Because you've, even Liverpool, you've got other bands who are really popular. You've got Jerry and the Pacemakers who are having number ones, what, their first three songs get a number one. So why is it the Beatles explode and others are like meteors?
2: Because Jerry and the Pacemakers and their ilk, they they fit not exactly the pre-established formula because as i was saying there isn't there isn't really a group formula at all but what they are is is easy and safe they're nice songs that's why they go to number one uh, and they look like nice nice lads next door kind of thing you know you might let your daughter go out with one of those guys but there's nothing truly original about them whereas the beatles were absolutely packed with originality unplanned originality they sound different to anybody else nobody else does the a lead vocal with harmony vocals simultaneously whilst playing instruments. So the the groups that existed like the Shadows or the Tornados either didn't sing at all, or or they would just they, well virtually didn't sing. I mean they're, they're just backing the lead guy, um, Shane Fenton and the Fentones, Joe Brown and the Brothers. You didn't yeah. go there. You didn't go to any Joe Brown gig to hear the Brothers sing. <laughs> you didn't. But they might do the old harmony. But the Beatles they got three lead vocalists who trade. So then if John does a song, then Paul does a song, then George does a song, and the others are all backing him and they do exciting rhythm and blues numbers from america that no one's heard of but they sound like they they've written them because they've made them their own they look handsome and dynamic they've got the hairstyle that nobody else has got they dress like nobody else dresses they are funny they are just a dynamic bunch when brian epstein sees them he likes their performance as musicians but what really bowls him over is their charisma and it just pours off the stage and grabs the audience their charisma is is really what they had in the cavern and other early shows and they never lost that but the shows changed and so they had to adapt a little bit as years went by where do we place the start of beatlemania well, in my book, Tune In, I kind of advanced the notion that it really begins in Liverpool in about 61, because when they first grabbed the cavern audiences, and it is mostly about the cavern in Liverpool, but never, never totally, but mostly. That is a microcosm of the way that Britain and then the world is going to go. That same fascination with who these people are and kids phoning them up and hanging out outside their houses and all of that begins very, very early on a local level. And what you see there is how it's going to be. And then if you're talking about Beatlemania in the newspaper sense of the term, as a word it was coined in October 63, when Fleet Street cottoned on to the fact that something really extraordinary was happening here. But in terms of its behavioral pattern, it really begins earlier. On a national level, it begins with, well, about January or February 63, when Please Please Me comes out very early, much earlier than people usually put it.
1: And. Fleet Street must have absolutely pounced on this whole concept. What was their stance? Were they supportive or did they clutch their pearls?
2: Oh, no. Fleet Street loved the Beatles because they were tremendous news value. They There was a news story every day. There was either the story of them themselves and what they were doing and saying, or there was the story of the, the, the scenes outside theatres. So when they played, for example, they did a tour in November, December 63, Uh, of the UK it was their fourth British tour that year there were Big news stories in each city or town twice. One was the night they came and played, but the other, the first news story, was when the tickets went on sale, which would typically be about six weeks earlier, because then there were fans queuing outside on the pavement all night long, and the St John's ambulance brigade there, and p- parents bringing thermos flasks and, <laughs> and and kids with their blankets, determined to be first in the queue. That's a tremendous story. I mean, one of the things that I most love about the Beatles, and you cannot it. when you look at any image of where they are any image where the beatles are in the picture but you've got the public as well is that everybody's happy to see them yeah. you see tremendous f- smiles and laughter on people's faces when the beatles are in their vicinity and that is something that maintains to this day if paul mccartney is in soho today and there are people outside his office they will be smiling at the thought of seeing him or having seen him they engendered tremendous pleasure in people, and they still do. And you, again, you can't manufacture that. It's, it's, it's there because it's organically there.
1: It occurs to me when you're talking about this pleasure that people take and the joy and the pride that people take in the Beatles, it must have been a real... Kind of national boost for self esteem in a country that had been really decimated by World War II. There's this natural resource that is slowly coming to the attention of the rest of the world and is creating a new paradigm in pop culture i wonder if that had an effect on their popularity the fact that they were representing gb
2: very much so when the beatles first went to america in february 64 uh, and made this phenomenal impact there it was a source of immense pride in britain that they were our boys and they'd come up they'd gone over there and they'd shown the americans how to do it yeah go boys but though there was that pride there's also this british thing which those of us who've lived here a long time will understand is that we we like to take them down a peg or two as mm-hmm. well and so in, in by the end of the 1960s that through, when that journey's been run they are actually less popular in Britain than anywhere else it would seem Ugh. because we were kind of more critical of them because they were ours we could be more critical whereas in other countries they were just more open minded about you know, what wonderful music they were giving people and how they had changed things but here it was like well, well they're not as good as they used to be and all you know. All There's that.
1: probably that sense of familiarity, over familiarity and ownership and almost like they're a member of the family. That's right. And um, they showed so much promise. I didn't think they were going to turn out like this, but... Yeah, that is
2: exactly how it was. Yeah. And it was, it was that same family thing of, you know, we can knock them, but we don't want you to knock them. So if anybody else knocks the Beatles, well, we'll gather around and protect them. But in this country, we can actually take them down a peg or two because they're ours. Mm. And it was been a, quite a shock to me to really absorb myself in late 1960s media responses to the Beatles in this country and just to see how negative things have become. Hmm sadly
0: one of the most joyous things mark i think about the beatles is this the startling ascent of their music how they redefine music how quickly they change so when we're looking at 1963 and we're looking at the singles that come out mm. even in that brief period from love me do through please please me and then from me to you to she loves you you can see that crescendo can't you yeah which, which one of those tunes for you defines Beatlemania? Is it, is it She Loves You with the screams and the Us? Because that's in my head, that's what I would associate with Beatlemania.
2: She Loves You and Twist and Shout, actually, which wasn't a single, but it was an EP, and it did so well. It, EP, extended play record, four, four songs on two sides of vinyl in a shiny sleeve with a picture cover. That EP did so well, it was like a single, and it was those two, Twist and Shout and She Loves You, that absolutely were the soundtrack of British Beatlemania. The other records had been, they were part of the build-up, no doubt about it, Please Please Me, Love Me Do, Please Please Me, and From Me To You, especially From Me To You, because it was number one for weeks, but it was those two that absolutely were part of that summer into autumn 1963 wave, and in particular it was She Loves You with its yeah, 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 became instantly a British catchphrase. And it was instantly in use by people in all walks of life. It was yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you said it as an adult, you were with it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You were gear.
2: You were the gear. You were, you were, you know, you you had your finger on the pulse of what's happening in today's teenage world. Because it was like, well, that's what they're all saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah. Or just single yeah, you know, if you wanted to reduce it a bit, but still show you were slightly tuned in. So um, She Loves You is the the song that absolutely is the soundtrack of that first great Fleet Street wave of Beatlemania. And
1: Mark, where would we have heard She Loves You? Where were they being played, on the radio or were they on television?
2: Yes, well, I mean, the Beatles... They they were great on television and great on radio. And in this country, we had the BBC Light Programme, ah. which was the BBC's um, one of three national networks. There was the Home Service, the third programme and the light programme. And the light <laughs> programme had all music that wasn't strictly, seriously classical. Um, and so the Beatles were on all those programmes, but their records were on the other radio programs so Housewives Choice for example um, which was every morning (laughs) every morning for 55 minutes I think um, Before
1: the housewives had to get back to work. And- with the
2: work. No, yeah. no, it was to encourage work. It was, it, oh. it was music. It was music. Like, a, like another program that followed it, it was music while you work.
1: I see. And
2: there was um, two-way family favorites on the Saturday, uh, Sunday lunchtime when housewives would be cooking the Sunday roast. Hmm. They would be listening to two-way family favorites and it would have requests typically for serving personnel. They became increasingly <laughs> places where the Beatles could be heard because no good radio program could afford to leave them out because they, right. had, they had a grip on the nation by this point. Everybody did want to hear them and wanted to request the record for somebody else, a friend or whatever. And then there was Radio Luxembourg, and that was a pretty much it until the Pirates began at Easter 64. Right. See, TV-wise, there wasn't that much. There uh, weren't many places where a teenage music could be heard. There was no Top of the Pops yet, but it was coming because of the Beatles. A lot of things happened because of the Beatles, ah. and Top of the Pops is one of them. Ready, Steady, Go is another. It might have happened anyway, but it was the Beatles giving this this new music great force and shape. We haven't talked about this yet, but as soon as the Beatles have their first number one, every British record company of any salt said are there any more like that (laughs) and they all went running up to liverpool to sign these acts from liverpool and suddenly liverpool is 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 dominating british music but it's really only the beatles who are going to last because the others haven't got that originality they're going to be around for a little while but not really very long but nonetheless suddenly whereas the beatles had struggled like mad to get a contract and got one by luck more than anything else because of the Beatles, all the other bands called The Something, Mm -hmm. none of whom could get a contract before the Beatles, including them, suddenly they're being offered contracts. And so the whole popular music, scene changes shape because of the Beatles. Magazines like Fabulous and Rave begin, Top of the Pops begins, Ready, Steady, Go is given a huge boost because the Beatles are there. And so this thing happens by 64 that didn't exist a year earlier.
1: Wow, that's so interesting. So they engendered an entire media industry right across print and broadcast.
2: Yeah, then the national newspapers... I think the Mirror and possibly the Express used to run the top ten or top twenty chart every week. Daily Telegraph started running the chart, <laughs> and it, they just made pop music much more current and and much less juvenile delinquency than before. Mm. It's now actually becoming a thing. It's it's it started its journey to what it would become. It didn't really begin until the Beatles. The Beatles had predecessors, but the great acceleration is theirs.
0: Katie, we'll often reach in Billy's song um, a cultural moment which is seismic and it's sometimes quite hard to feel the effects in the modern day. Like I think we got it with Marlon Brander, didn't we? When we watched Brando, we were like, yes, this would have yeah. blown her minds. Yeah. So how do you think, like if you listen now to She Loves You, can you understand what it does? You know, when you've got the drum roll at the start and you've got, you've got Maka doing his little Richard and you've got the harmonies at the end. Can you, does it still make sense today? Do you think?
1: Well, to me, it hits me in the way that Buddy Holly's music hits me, which is that it's happy and tuneful, but it's a little tame because we're, over familiar with it. It's like watching the original Star Wars, slightly what's the big whoop. Whereas if you were there at its inception, you'd think it was just incredibly dynamic and a bit avant-garde and angular. I mean, when I was listening as a five-year-old lying on my stomach, trying to peer through the crack underneath my sister's doorway, listening to uh, She Loves You sailing out from her dance set, record player. I do remember thinking this was kind of Pied Piper music, like I just wanted to be next to it and near it. It made me really happy. But in terms of feeling like it was changing the entire paradigm, I can't hear it in that music anymore, in the way that I can with I Am The Walrus or the Sgt. Pepper album.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. There is a familiarity. But I, I spoke to my dad about this, Katie. Who oh, has yeah. popped up a few times on our show. Yes. He was a useful um, witness, on a, via television at least, to England's Got a New Queen, amongst other things. He saw well, the he Beatles. Well, he danced
1: with Julie Christie. He danced
0: with Julie Christie. He, yeah, he
1: was everywhere. He was a bit of a zella, your <laughs> He's dad.
0: zealot of the Six. Yeah. He pops up again in November 1963. When Billy
1: s- needs to write a song about your dad. <laughs> he does. Might <laughs> be
0: quite a short song with some prosaic sections. But in November 1963, <laughs> he goes to see the Beatles <gasps> at the Regal in cambridge so i asked him for his memories and his memories are that he could hear nothing couldn't hear anything of the songs because of the screaming and the amps were really small and then his other memory is as he left the regal is the overwhelming stench of urine
1: wait whose urine his the beatles Girls, that is
2: what? that that is the white heat of Beatlemania tour in the Britain in Britain. That, that that November December '63 tour. That is the one that really, really nothing like it had been seen before or heard before. And um, the girls were so ecstatic to see the Beatles that many of them lost control of their bladders. Oh. So, oh, as, as Mark some, of
1: success.
2: Uh, as somebody once said to me, there wasn't a dry seat in the house. <laughs> <laughs> what mm. was that like for the Beatles then? Because
0: no one has been through that. It's extraordinary for an audience to go through such an experience. But for those four lads who, they've not been unknowns, but they've been ordinary blokes in Liverpool yeah. in a matter of months before.
2: Yeah. And, and in their own minds, they still are. I mean, they kept their feet on the ground, which is one of the reasons they were able to progressed so well in the 60s um because they 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 never really let it get to their heads they kept each other in check as it were on the one hand they always said they were they didn't mind people letting their hair down and enjoying themselves and if that if screaming is a part of that then so be it on the other hand as musicians which is always what they were it was a little bit of frustration that they what they were playing couldn't be heard uh, and they really could have been doing anything, singing anything, because it really couldn't be heard by anybody. They had these puny amplifiers. Their vocals were going through the house PA, which would be used for bingo or, you know, <laughs> someone, if someone came on to do an announcement before a film or whatever, it would be that little speaker system to carry their vocals. Their guitars were through the amps. Not even sure the Ringo's drums were mic'd so they 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 had no chance to actually project the only chance they could get to the back of a big auditorium like that would be if the audience was silent. but is since the audience was screaming their heads off, then they just couldn't be heard at all. So you would go and see them and you would just be you'd be screaming at who you could see on the stage, but not by what you could hear. You could often couldn't even tell if they were playing or if they'd stopped and were between numbers. Wow.
1: I love this whole idea of this mass tsunami of adolescent sexuality yeah. just coming out of these girls and uh, shocking them, you know, shocking the girls themselves, like, wow, like they're they're possessed by desire. Um, This must have been very alarming to society. I mean, especially back in those days where young ladies have to adopt a certain amount of decorum and discretion, and they're just losing their total froth in front of the Fab Four. So did that cause any sort of consternation i'm wondering
2: yes it did uh, there are quite a few psychological reports uh, written in the moment about <laughs> Beatlemania and the responses to it because this was something that adult adult society as you've just said it they they had to respond to it's just like well this is, is their children or their grandchildren who are going off to these events and behaving in a in a way that isn't normal isn't right, right it hasn't been done before right there had been screaming before, but never on this level. The Beatles had a new level of fame that hadn't existed before, and they attracted a new level of mania that hadn't existed before. But Valentino had had girls chasing him and sure. screaming for it. But not in this way. And the world was becoming now more joined up. So this was something that um, did alarm the adult generation and there were psychological reports and quite, they were amusing in their moment. They're doubly amusing now. They're so snooty, read, aren't they? You know. So how can a guy sitting in an office at the age of 55 have any, no, have any notion of why that girl is actually screaming? But it was phenomenal for the girls to actually go and do that. Yeah. And it was this great unbuttoning of British society happens right there with the Beatles and other things because it's never just them. They're always in amongst other things that are going on at the same time. But they are the great accelerants of that liberality that occurred in the 60s, where you, if you look at Britain and other countries, America's another great example, If you look at young people, a picture of them or hear them speaking at one end of the 60s from the other end of the 60s, it's like something major has gone on here to change people's look, to change people's heads, their attitudes to sex, their attitudes to just growing up generally and what they feel they have the right to be as an independent person. It's
1: like the Beatles gave them permission to be young, to be teenagers. They sort of helped invent teenagers. It's
2: like that. Um, But the Beatles themselves, they had this very healthy disregard for anyone saying that to them because they weren't actually trying to do any of that all they were doing was writing songs getting up on stage and singing them and going in the recording studio and recording them the rest of it is happening to them or because of them but they haven't actually fashioned it in the sense of they weren't trying to do that Mm -hmm. so whenever and this was quite common in the 60s Beatles would be interviewed by people, and they would try and say, "Well you're responsible for this?" And they say, "No, we're not responsible for that." Yeah, you know, th- th- other things are happening maybe because of us, but we're not responsible for it, just because we've shown young girls and boys that they can think differently and be different doesn't mean we're responsible for what they do with that.. <laughs>
1: Oh, Tom, there is a lot of meat in this hoagie. I feel like we're going to have to keep noshin and chatting and chewing and talking to Mark for hours. I want to hear every single morsel of what he has to say. So here's my big idea. Shall we keep going and split this episode into two parts?
0: Katie, I'll be honest, even by your exhausted standards, that is a fine idea. Listeners, what we will do is we will split this release them at the same time so that the second part of this episode will be out at the same time as this one. It should actually appear right above this one in your podcast app. We hereby pledge, Katie, that it will be just as much fun as the first part. So please do check it out with us.
1: Tom, Listeners, I am a fizz and a froth, so see you over there in tiny, minute seconds. Crowd Network,
0: a place where you belong.
3: after we learned our 21-year-old daughter Kristen was murdered by her ex-boyfriend. It's a parent's worst nightmare. How much did we really know about domestic violence back then? Clearly not enough. Now we know plenty. We know domestic violence, or DV, can happen to anyone. One in three women suffer physical violence at the hands of intimate partners during their lifetimes. One in three I'm Bill Mitchell, host of the When Dating Hurts podcast. And my interviews with DV counselors, law enforcement, and especially actual DV survivors give the pandemic of domestic violence the attention it deserves. The When Dating Hurts podcast. It's a series of lives being saved.
1: Hello,
0: everyone.